uh, about the sacraments, we uh, have um, uh, talked about baptism in the past uh, and a couple of weeks, and then you got to learn a little bit about Susanna Wesley last week uh, as a kind of interlude. Uh, I said that sacraments are basically outward acts that have uh, inward grace associated with them. And for Protestants, we tend to delimit that to things that Jesus himself commanded us to do, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism, though you can make the case that foot washing is also something that Jesus commanded us to do. And I know churches, not that I'd point to anyone in particular, but <laughs> churches that actually practice that uh, kind of like a sacrament, right, uh, as something that Jesus commanded us to do. Well, uh, I want to talk now about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, uh, and I want to share with you a reading from Holy Scripture. This, I would say, is one of the difficult passages of Scripture. Uh, I, this is right after 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26, where Paul gives the, the basic narrative of the Supper, and we're going to talk about that. But then he goes on to explicate a little more of what he means by the Holy Communion and some of his words about how to practice it. And he says these words, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of Christ. Excuse me, for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me, let me accent that differently. Examine yourselves and only then eat and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak or, and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. Eternal God, as we come to meditate on your word and the promises and challenges for our lives that we find in it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would descend and be with us. Give us words to speak. Give us words to hear that we may know your truth and we may live by it. For we ask it in Christ's name and for Christ's sake. Amen. What we call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is um, sometimes called Holy Communion. It's sometimes called uh, a variety of different terms and different traditions. I like to say the Lord's Supper. and There's a long uh, Protestant tradition of that because it's a term that Paul himself used earlier in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians where he refers to the Supper of the Lord. That's why it's one of the favored terms. Uh, Catholics uh, developed over the centuries a term mass and it comes from the saying at the end of the service where they used to say in Latin, ite missa est. Ite means y'all go. It is the missa, it's the dismissal, but uh, it came to be understood Y'all go, it's the Mass, or the Mass is completed. So Mass comes to be the term that Catholics use for the Lord's Supper. In Eastern Orthodox churches, it's the divine liturgy. 
in uh, churches that speak Syriac, uh, it's the sacred kurbana. Kurbana is a, uh, a New Testament term used for offering. It's actually an Aramaic word that appears in the New Testament. Uh, so a lot of different terminology. Uh, in ecumenical circles, they wanted to find a word that almost nobody used, so it wouldn't seem like anybody's particular property. And the, the, the term that's become popular ecumenically is Eucharist. Uh, you know, so we speak of the Eucharist, and I think when Methodists hear it, they think, oh, that must be a Catholic word. And when Catholics hear it, they think, well, that must be a Baptist term or something like that. <laughs> but, but I think really it was just ecumenically acceptable because nobody really claimed the word. But the Lord's Supper is the term we use for the feast that Jesus Christ uh, initiated. In the background of this, just as I said that in the background of baptism were uh, a number of different water rituals that were practiced by people throughout the world. I would say the background of the Lord's Supper, really important to understand, is the role of meals and fellowship and reconciliation that is brought about by simply sitting together and having a meal with each other. Now my family, the Campbell family of Scotland, uh, is accused of murdering a group of their fellow Scots of Clan Donald, uh, Gary MacDonald's folks, uh, the, the MacDonald uh, clan, uh, way back in the 1690s, in 1692. Uh, if you want to read about it, it's a very, very complicated story. And the way the story has been told is not really the way that it has worked out uh, that, it, that it actually happened. The way the story is told, though, is that the Campbells invited the MacDonalds over for a great festive meal, got them good and drunk, and then in their sleep butchered them. Now, the way the story's been told, and, and as I say, you can read about it, and it's, it's historically much, much, much more complicated. The Campbells did some really bad things, but it, it's not exactly the way the story was told. But as the story is told, it's a horrific thing, not so much because the murders, hey, this was Scotland in the 17th century. Murder was just, yeah, we do that, okay? But uh, that, that was not the big deal. The big deal was you don't invite somebody over to dinner and then kill them. That's rude, okay? Now that's really a problem. How many times has your mother told you, do not kill your dinner guests, dear. You're just not supposed to do that. Really, really that was why it was so horrible, the thought that you would invite someone in for a meal and then kill them. That's, a, that's an utter betrayal because a meal is a sign of pe people being reconciled with each other. Now, you've been at plenty of meals with people to whom you're not reconciled, probably. You know, you know it's not the most fun kind of meal to have, but that's, that, that was the significance in ancient cultures. If you sat down and had a meal with each other, then it was a sign that you were reconciled to each other. That then gets tied up with the idea of offering sacrifices and shared meals. Now, sometimes we don't like to use the word sacrifice because sacrifice is a term that has become so far removed from what it meant in biblical times that uh, it's, it's just hard to explain it. it. Most people, when they hear the word sacrifice, it, it means not doing something that you really, really, really want to do or giving up something that you'd really, really, really like to have. And that's just, that, that may have been a little part of what was meant in biblical times and in ancient cultures by sacrifice, but not part of it. If you understand this, though, you're going to understand the depth of what's going on in the Lord's Supper. So let me tell you three things that usually accompanied sacrifices 
in the ancient world. Uh, not just Jewish sacrifices, but very typical. And in fact, I'm going to use the word offerings rather than sacrifices because that's a, a broader term. One of the misleading things about sacrifice, people always think it means killing an animal. And, and if you read Leviticus, for example, there's all kinds of offerings that people made. So maybe offering is the best basic term. And an offering is the basic idea. The thought was that a human being uh, has somehow offended God. You've come out of fellowship with God, and you need to make a gift. Just like if you had made somebody angry at you, you'd feel like you needed to bring them a little something, bring them some flowers or something like that to, as a way of saying. I mean, it's not that that's going to buy your friendship or something. Uh, and it's just a way of your saying, okay, I've done something here. I want to be reconciled. Can we put this back together? You bring something to God as a way of saying, God, I, I know that I've offended you, but I want to put this back together. So you make an offering, and it might be flowers, and it might be grain, it might be oil, it might be an animal that you had brought uh, for that offering, but you bring an offering to God. It sort of represents you're giving yourself to God. Just like when you give a gift to a friend, it really means you're kind of giving yourself to your friend. Uh, the real gift is you. It's not just that thing that you have given them. The second part of an offering in the ancient world was the transformation of that offering, typically by burning. Now, typically they'd have an altar, and we carry on that tradition by having a Lord's table. If it says, this do in remembrance of me, okay, that's the Lord's table. But it, it's kind of like an altar in the front, just as ancient people would have an altar. And they would place their offering, whatever it was, on the altar, and it would be cooked. And I think cooking is literally the right word for it. If they brought an offering of grain, they would actually mix it with meal and other stuff and make it into a loaf, and they would bake it. So it's not just burning it or destroying it, it's cooking it that's really going on. If they brought uh, an offering of the uh, firstborn of their flocks, you know, a lamb or a goat or something like that, then they would have it cleaned, uh, like a butcher cleans meat, and it would be roasted. And again, the idea is not that it's destroyed, in the cooking, the idea is that it's prepared for a meal. It's prepared for eating. You see, that's what's going on. And then as a matter of fact, the third thing we need to realize, and this is the really crucial thing to understand for understanding the Lord's Supper, this offering is eaten together with the worshipers and the priests and the people who were gathered around. So it, it, it's really offerings were a kind of shared meal uh, and the preparation for it was the prayers that they said when they offer, made the offering to God and so forth. Jewish people in the time before Jesus made lots and lots of offerings. Now it's been said that every book of the Bible has a, a kind of purpose that, that you know, God intends this book for and you can use them for particular purposes and maybe the purpose of Leviticus is to help you sleep at night uh, because uh, Leviticus is a really, really boring book. Uh, I mean, it's all about, uh, and, and really it's stuff that goes on in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and 
so forth. It, all of these books have detailed regulations about how you make offerings and which offerings are appropriate in which seasons and how the priest's robe is supposed to have bells and pomegranates along the hem of the gown and so on and so forth. So lots of detail about that. But you, what you can't miss is the idea that Jewish people had lots and lots of sacrificial rituals. Now by the time of Jesus, after the Jewish temple is destroyed, that could no longer be part of Judaism. So Judaism actually goes through a massive change right around the time of Jesus. And Christian's interpretation of that is that Jesus' own sacrifice has become the final sacrifice that ends all of the other sacrifices. You find that especially in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews may well have been written after 75 AD when the temple in Jerusalem had been partially destroyed because the message of Hebrews over and over and over is Jesus has entered into the true temple. The true temple is not an earthly temple made with human hands. The true temple is the temple that is laid up with God in heaven. Uh, and that Jesus has entered that. And so it basically says we don't need the old sacrifices that were described in uh, Leviticus and Numbers and uh, maybe Deuteronomy uh, reiterated there. What we need is uh, the one sacrifice of Jesus. But it's very clear that these ancient people had ideas about sacrifices, offerings, and all of these elements, offering to God, transformation of the offering, sharing the meal together were part of it. What did they mean? Well, I've already said the offering meant that you give yourself to God. The offering had to be of the very best you had. You couldn't bring your remainders to God. You had to bring the firstborn of your flocks. Uh, you had to bring the first fruits of your fields. It, you bring the very best of yourself to offer uh, that to God. Secondly, the transformation, you know, when you cook something on an altar, ancient people didn't understand the processes involved in fire and burning and cooking and so forth. And this was very mysterious, especially the smoke that came up when they made an offering. And so they came to think of that part as God's answer. You know, we make an offering to God and then the burning and the smoke rising is a, is a sign that God has accepted the offering. In fact, you get hints in the Old Testament scriptures that when the smoke arose straight up, that was a particular sign of God's favor. Uh, you know that story about Cain and Abel, and it says one of them made a sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable to God, and Abel's sacrifice was acceptable. Well, how did they know which one was acceptable to God or which one was not? Did God say, nope, not accepted for that one? Yes, accepted for that one. Maybe it's they were observing the smoke. Now, a service that we have at Lover's Lane <clears throat> on Wednesday evenings, we have Holy Communion, and we always use incense. That's a little uncomfortable for Methodist people, but at this particular service, it's kind of a meditative service. We use incense, but our HVAC system is usually going, so when our incense goes up, it's just going up all over. One time, we, we came into the sanctuary, and the HVA system was turned off, and it was interesting because 
the smoke went absolutely straight up. Uh, and it was very impressive, this column of smoke rising. Well, the incense kind of represents our prayers rising before God, but there I could see why ancient people would see that and think, that's a sign that God has accepted this offering, this kind of mysterious transformation of the elements uh, and the smoke rising straight up from that. But then the meal itself represented what meals together had meant from time uh, out of mind. It meant that people were reconciled. They were reconciled to each other. They were reconciled maybe to the priests or the Levites who had helped make the offering. But you know, sometimes they imagine that God actually sat down at the table and shared in that offering with them. And so God uh, becomes one of the participants in the great feast and you are reconciled to God. It's the sign that you are a reconciled person when you sit down and you have uh, a meal with each other. One of the critical Jewish offerings was the Passover offering. The Passover offering was once a year. Uh, it had come to be elaborated in Jewish tradition. The offering had to be an offering of a lamb that was particularly unblemished, without spot. Uh, the lamb was sacrificed at a particular time on Thursday uh, at noon. Uh, lambs had to be sacrificed at the temple. Uh, they were prepared and then they were brought out and shared. And then part of the Passover celebration was to share a meal together in which certain cups of wine were blessed with a prayer that God would bless the uh, wine that they received. And then the body of the uh, lamb was shared with each other as a sign of God's work of reconciling God's people in the great event of the Passover. Every year in the spring when Jews uh, remember the Passover story, they are remembering God's great work of reconciliation and they share in a meal that involves a kind of bread. Uh, have, you, have you had, uh, what do you call the bread you use for, for Passover? Uh, it's unleavened bread, yes, but what is it called? Uh, matzot, yeah, yeah, the matzot bread. The, the, there's, a, there's a joke uh, among Jewish people that says, why should you never eat square matzot in the dark? Why should you never eat square matzot in the dark? And the answer is you might eat the box. <laughs> it's, so, it's, so, it's so flavorless and all, you, know, you, might, you might eat the box, right? Uh, if you go to public places during Passover time, you'll see a lot of restaurants and so forth have matzot available so Jews can have that. If you go to a Jewish synagogue, very often uh, outside of Pesach or Passover season, they will have um, uh, um, um, typically a, a sort of celebration after the synagogue service like at noon or afternoon on Saturday and very often they will have a cup of wine and a loaf of leavened bread sitting there in the middle of the table because that represents the, the meal, the fellowship uh, of God's people. So the Passover offering is particularly important in Jewish culture. The narratives that are given about the institution of the supper are interestingly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, maybe John's Gospel, but we're not quite sure about that in John's Gospel. And yet, in this case, also in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. Now, Walt has, excuse me, 
the Reverend Markham has re mentioned uh, the book that I wrote about the gospel uh, and the, that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I hand on to y'all what I also received. And it really does say y'all in Greek. It's plural, not singular. And we all know that's the, if, if it were translated properly into English, it would have the right grammar and so forth. But I hand on to y'all what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's a kind of sacred act of handing on a tradition. Same thing is going on in 1 Corinthians 11:23, where Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to y'all, same kind of formula of tradition, formula of handing on, that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he gives the narrative of taking the bread, taking the cup, giving thanks to God. Now, when, when Paul uses the word in this passage and in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he says, Jesus took the cup and gave thanks, the word for gave thanks is ephkaristhesis in the Greek language of the New Testament. And ephkaristhia means thanksgiving, so if you go to Athens today and you meet somebody and you want to say thank you, you say evkaristo, that means I give you thanks. That's the root of the word Eucharist. Um, I, I sometimes hear folks say, well, Eucharist, that, that ain't one of them Bible words. Well, if you understand that it comes from a biblical term, it really does come from one of the terms that's used in this passage. But when Jesus gives thanks over the bread and over the cup, it's probably the matzot bread that's there, uh, and the cup uh, is the cup of wine that was present when Jews celebrated the Passover. It's part of the ritual for Passover. It's part of the story that they're telling uh, about God's deliverance of God's people. And you have to remember, at this feast, the body of the sacrificed lamb would have been right there on the table in front of them when Jesus took the unleavened bread and said, this is my body which is given or sacrificed for you, and then says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant that is given for you. The institution of the Lord's Supper occurs in the context of one of the Jewish sacrifices, namely the Passover sacrifice. There's a possible parallel in John chapter 13 and chapter 14 when Jesus is giving this long uh, sort of uh, closing oration. But it's not really clear if it's a Passover supper. And in fact, the way the story is told in John is that it looks like the, the, the occasion that he's describing is on Wednesday evening rather than Thursday evening when the Passover supper itself would have been celebrated. So we're not sure if we're getting an account of the same meal in John that we get in 1 Corinthians, in Matthew, in Mark, uh, and in Luke's uh, gospel. Uh, the context of the Passover feast I've already mentioned, but then what did people understand by this? And I can tell you how uh, early Christians understood these things. First of all, Christ's life and death were understood to be his offering to God. Sometimes we simplify the Christian message and we say, well, it's really just the death of Christ. And that, that's why the cross is such a central symbol for Christianity, because Christ's death is the consummation of his life. <clears throat> but as early Christians interpreted this, it was not just Christ's death that counted. His death was the consummation of his whole life. So it is not simply the death of Christ that counts for our salvation, 
Uh, it's his whole life, his teachings, his serving the poor. It's his um, uh, miracles that count as part of the offering that Jesus Christ brings. And what we all know is that underneath it, Jesus Christ is God. This is what we celebrate as Christians, that this is God who becomes uh, a human being. So in a sense, it's God offering God's own self, right? It's like God needs an offering, but all of them are imperfect. So God crawls up on the altar and becomes the offering on our behalf. It's an absolutely awesome thought. This is Jesus' offering to God is his life uh, and his death. They understood Christ's resurrection as a sign that God had accepted Christ's offering. And in fact, at one point, Paul says, he refers to Jesus' offering, he says, a sweet savor before God. It rose up as a sweet smell in the nostrils of God. It's that imagery of smoke rising before God. And the Old Testament sometimes says God could smell the sweetness of the offering. That uh, smell, you know, like when, when uh, somebody's cooking something wonderful in the kitchen here at Highland Park. Not that I'd point to anybody in particular, but, but when somebody's cooking something wonderful in the kitchen, you can smell that wonderful smell. It's like the smoke rising is the sign that God has accepted the offering, and Christ rising from the dead is the sign that God has accepted the offering of Jesus Christ. So that then leaves one more element. The Lord's Supper, then, is the sharing in Christ's sacrifice. It's the sharing in the fellowship. It's the sign that we are reconciled with each other. That really raises a question. Why shouldn't we have not just bread and Welch's grape juice? Now that's another question that I'll bring up next week. Okay, bread and Welch's grape juice. But why shouldn't we have a covered dish supper every time we celebrate Holy Communion? Isn't it uh, like a meal? In fact, uh, uh, in, first, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, it says they shared in the breaking of bread and fellowship in the apostles' teaching and so forth. Uh, early Christians had meals with each other, but one of the things Paul was concerned about in this passage in 1 Corinthians is that some people came to the meal and they brought sumptuous stuff for them to eat, and they sort of opened up their lunch kit and proceeded to eat all their great stuff, and the poor people came and they didn't have nice stuff to eat like that, okay? So uh, there's a little jealousy thing going on. Now this has never happened in Methodist churches before. I mean, right, uh, like uh, covered dish suppers. Covered dish suppers used to be what Methodists did in the fall when your crops came in and you kind of showed off what you had raised, you know, your pickles and your tomatoes and so forth. So maybe a little bit of that fruit inspection really was going on. Uh, you know, in Methodist circles when they had covered dish suppers. But eventually, and, and you can see this even in Paul's saying in this passage, so if, if you need to be fed, eat at home, and then, you know, come to the church to have the Lord's Supper. And, and what that implies is that the, the meal becomes separated from the sacred celebration of the life and work of Christ. But, but we also know that there really were meals that early Christians had uh, with each other. So if you go to an Eastern Orthodox church today, one of the things you'll see is that very few people in the congregation actually receive the Lord's Supper. You know, so they go up and the way they do it is they have the bread on a spoon and they dip it into the wine and sort of pop it into the 
the mouth of the person who comes to receive it. But after the service, you'll notice that they have baskets of bread. Now, this is bread that has been blessed by the priest but hasn't been consecrated in the formal celebration of the Lord's Supper. Anybody can grab that blessed but unconsecrated bread and eat it. That's actually a, a kind of remainder of the love feast that Christians used to have. They would have the church service and remember Christ's sacrifice, and then they would have uh, the sort of celebration. So one of my proposals is that if Methodists want to do this, why don't we say every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we really ought to have a covered dish supper as the full completion of, of that thing. But y'all are going to do that on June 15th or July 15th, right? Y'all going to have your, uh, your meal together. Barbara, are you providing that or is that something for the, the you, you're going to provide this one. Praise the Lord for that. Now that's, that's, that's even better than a covered dish supper. I think the early Christians understood Christ's sacrifice as this whole event of his life and death as his offering to God, his resurrection as a sign of God's acceptance of that offering. So the Lord's Supper then is the completion of Christ's sacrifice. It's not really finished until we come together and we recount what he has done and we receive the elements of bread and wine as a sign of that. The scriptures hint at deeper meaning. Sorry about this, the font got changed along the way. But if you can see this, in Philippians chapter 2, there's this kind of early Christian hymn where it says, Christ, though he was in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. I think what that suggests is that this is God who is acting. This is God who has, in a sense, poured out God's self as an offering, uh, and God has given God's, God has accepted the limitations of becoming a human being, and even going through death uh, as a way of God becoming an offering on our behalf. There's a mysterious scripture in Revelation 13, chapter 8, talking about a very evil character called the beast, and it says, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names, now that's the official translation. In Greek it's singular, and I think it should be whose name is not written. I think it's referring to the beast and not to all the people. But in any case, uh, the, the, the authorized version, the King James Version says, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's an interesting expression, slain from the foundation of the world. I'm quoting the King James Version here because most modern translations don't put it like that. They'll say, whose names are not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. But the problem is that in this case, the King James Version actually follows the Greek text of this verse much more carefully because the expression from the foundation of the world, apotis katavolis tu kosmu, is right after the word for slain. And it really does say slain from the foundation of the world. Now you might think, okay, so what's the big deal here? Well, here's the big deal. New Testament scholar at Notre Dame University, David Ani, has written, he says, it's impossible that Christ could be slain or slaughtered before the foundation of the world. Christ's slaughtering occurred on Calvary, you know, at the time of the crucifixion. But I might differ with him about that because, you see, I think the way the early Christians heard that verse from Revelation, I think what they understood was that Christ's death did not change God, that, in fact, Christ has always been 
uh, that God has always been God giving God's self up, pouring God's self out on behalf of the world. So in that sense, you can speak of Christ who was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because Christ's death really tells us who God is and who God has been all along, that God has been constantly loving us and pouring God's self out on our behalf. Uh, that's part of the mystery that we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Charles Wesley once wrote about the Lord's Supper, come and partake the gospel feast, be saved from sin in Jesus' rest. Oh, taste the goodness of our God and eat his flesh and drink his blood. What do you say about these passages when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood? Well, we all believe that Christ is present with us. Jesus said he would be present with us. Lo, I am with you always until the finishing of the world, until the end of the world. In what sense is Christ's presence with us in the celebration of the Lord's Supper? Uh, several theories have been put forward. You probably learned about transubstantiation back when you were in uh, high school or college or something like that. It was the theory that was favored by Catholics in the Middle Ages, a theory that involved distinguishing the substance of a thing from what it really is or how it appears and saying that the appearance of bread and wine remain, but the substance of bread and wine are completely changed into the body and blood of Christ. Catholics still use that term sometimes, but, but very seldom these days. If you look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it's much more focused on the reality of Christ's presence than on the theory of transubstantiation. Another way to say this, the way Lutherans always favored saying it, is to say uh, Jesus really meant it when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and their belief is that Christ's body is really present. The word for body is corpus, so we call this corporeal presence. Christ is truly present along with the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine are there, and the body and blood of Christ are there uh, as well. That's one way to think about Christ's presence. Another way is the way that John Calvin used, and I think it's the way Charles and John Wesley really thought about this. Calvin was concerned to say Jesus' body had ascended into heaven. His body couldn't literally be on earth because Jesus' body was in heaven. But he thought there's something really unique about the Lord's Supper. There's a unique presence or power that's just as if Jesus Christ was bodily present. The word he used there for that unique power was virtus in Latin, uh, virtue in English, but it doesn't mean like moral virtue. It's kind of a strange use of the word, like in the King James Version of the Bible when it says, Jesus felt power go out from him. In the King James Version, it says, Jesus felt virtue go out from him, not moral virtue, but virtus in the sense of power. Calvin says there's a unique, distinctive power in this celebration. Uh, another way to think about it was the way that was advocated by the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, who said this is basically a way of teaching. Jesus is present just as Jesus is always present when two or three are gathered in his name, but there's nothing distinctive about Christ's presence when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. That view has been very popular among liberal Protestants and also, interestingly, among very evangelical Protestants as well. Uh, it was often attributed to John and Charles Wesley, but I don't think so. Here's a verse from Charles Wesley that we're going to sing in a minute. It's a hymn of his 
that's all about the presence of Christ when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And he keeps asking, how could bread and wine convey the presence and the power of God into human beings? And he says, let the wisest mortals show how we the grace receive. Feeble elements bestow a power not theirs to give. Who explains the wondrous way how through these elements the virtue came? Okay, see, there's that term used in that unique way. These elements, the virtue did convey, yet still remain the same. I think that means Charles and John Wesley took up this Calvinistic understanding of the Lord's <laughs> Supper that says Christ's body and blood are not literally present on earth when we celebrate. But nevertheless, it's not just a generic presence of Christ. There is a unique presence of Christ uh, when we celebrate and when we consummate, finish the sacrifice of Christ in that way. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday, and I'm going to try to explain some of the service to you then. But right now, uh, we're going to proceed to sing. It's a tune that I think is absolutely lovely but may not be familiar. You're going to play it through once for us. He's going to play it through once for us, and then you can hear how this is uh, sung, and we will sing it together. Number 627 in the hymnal. <laughs> 